a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I hope you're having a great day, and I hope by the time you have listened to some of the content that I have to share with you today, that your day is going even better. Now, I may be hoping in vain because, frankly, I glanced over the headlines a little bit, and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. So let me let me get some hard truths out of the way here first before we jump in. Um, look, uh, looks like another pandemic. Or so the media is telling us. A pandemic is beginning to unfold. Monkeypox is is the latest word that seems to be on a lot of people's minds, or words, I should say, that are on people's minds. Um, economic difficulty. In fact, you have to kind of wonder if maybe the monkeypox isn't something to distract from the economic realities that are, shall we say, less than pleasant. But we're going to talk about those a little bit later on in the show. First thing I want to do... I want to thank the sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, and Dixie Chiropractic, which you can reach at DixieChiro.com. So I'm going to start with something that, uh, you know, normally, you know, you want to charge right in with the, with the whole idea, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, right? Get people captured with the, the stuff that really gets their passion going, their heart thumping, and, you know, they can hear their pulse in their ears. But I want to take a step back today. And the first thing I'm going to share with you and, and ask you to consider is an article from a writer with whom I have disagreed probably 90% of the time, and and. I don't want to make it sound like because he's so dumb that I, I just, uh, I'm so much smarter. David French, I actually had the chance to hear him speak a few years ago at a, a conference of, of think tanks. And the, the guy is actually, he's a very, very brilliant man. Oftentimes, the fi- reason I find myself disagreeing with him is because it seems like a lot of his um, his takes seem to favor the status quo or seem to uh, provide you know, justification or wiggle room for the establishment. And that's not to say that he's an establishment lackey. I'm just saying his perspective, I think, sometimes seems to, to strengthen or to try to uphold some of the very institutions that I think are doing us dirty. So it's a difference of opinion. I'm not telling you, therefore, you have to believe me over him. But I want to share some excerpts from a column that he shared about uh, how a commitment to kindness doesn't mean surrendering your convictions. And maybe this is going to be one of those cases where you're going to say, well, Brian, you know, I agree with you 90% of the time, and this is one of those times I'm not going to agree. But I, I would strongly encourage you to read David French's essay, A Commitment to Kindness Does Not Mean You're Surrendering Your Convictions. Now, he's talking about civility, and he starts with a personal experience about something that was going on more than 20 years ago, at, uh, I believe, at Tufts University. And there was an organization on campus, the Tufts Christian Fellowship, which apparently was uh, on trial of sorts. The student judiciary had expelled it from campus in a late-night emergency meeting. And so they went to appeal to that student uh, judiciary 
to, to see if they could get this emergency expulsion reversed. And, and the reason they had been expelled, remember, this is 22 years ago. So the political climate and particularly the uh, uh, societal climate was quite a bit different. But the reason that they were trying to expel this group was because it excluded a gay student from leadership because she did not agree with that group's traditional stance on sexual morality. Now, they didn't exclude her from her leadership because she was lesbian. They'd known about her sexual orientation. They actually included her in the group from the very first days of her freshman year. But the reason that she was asked not to be a part of that group's leadership was because she did not share the group's theological views about sex. So to put it very plainly, David French writes, this uh, Tufts Christian uh, Fellowship, or TCF, simply wished to be led by people who shared its values. Now think about that for just a moment. Well, but they were excluding somebody. Well, that's great. But, you know, in the name of inclusion, would you invite an avowed Satanist to come teach Sunday school or primary to your kids? Would you? Probably not. If they don't share your values. That's a fundamental bedrock principle of expressive association. David French asks, should campus regulations require an LGBT group to be open to leaders who, for example, oppose gay marriage? Should you make him do that in the name of inclusion? No, that would be absurd. So he was there as legal counsel, defending the bedrock principle of expressive association. But he was very pessimistic about how this hearing was going to go. Tufts is a private university. The First Amendment does not apply. In other words, it's not a government school. It's not like it's the government trying to censor the uh, the Tufts Christian Fellowship. And even worse, the student judiciary was an elected body. Many of the candidates had run on the platform of we're going to toss these Christian fellows off the off the campus. So tensions were very high. Apparently, some very hateful anti-Christian chalkings had been written on the sidewalks, and they knew they were walking into a protest outside the hearing room doors. But he says, I wasn't prepared for what happened next. TCF had dozens of members, and the group's student leaders asked them to stay at a house off campus and pray rather than walk with them to the hearing. In other words, they didn't bring their own protest with them because they were trying not to exacerbate tensions. So he led a very small band of students, four leaders and one witness, into the student center and toward the hearing room. Now, when they got there... The protesters had turned out the lights. Some had candles. They filled the halls. It was dark. It was scary. Several walked up menacingly to the TCF student leaders and glared at them from just inches away. So they tried to hurry through the crowd to get into the hearing room. But when they tried to enter, they were told, you have to leave. The student judges aren't aren't ready yet. So they stood there outside the room, huddled in a corner in the dark, surrounded by a wall of angry protesters. And he says, I tried to act unconcerned, but it was a deeply intimidating moment. One of the young TCF leaders started visibly shaking. When they finally were allowed in the hearing room, the proceedings immediately felt like a kangaroo court. The case against the Tufts Christian Fellowship was full of falsehoods. The judiciary broke its own rules by permitting activists to speak against the group. Only actual witnesses were supposed to testify. And by the time Jonathan, who was one of the TCF student leaders, stood up to speak, he had been through an ordeal. He'd walked to class through anti-Christian chalkings. He'd endured physical intimidation. Now he just heard an avalanche of false claims. How did he respond? David French says, I'll never forget the moment. He turned to the student who brought the claims against the Tufts Christian Fellowship and said, TCF would not say one word against her. 
He said that the leaders loved her and mourned their lost friendship. They harbored no bitterness against her. Then he turned to the student judiciary and in a quiet but firm voice said that TCF had not violated university policy and that he would defend TCF's place on campus, that if Tufts commitments to academic freedom and diversity meant anything, they meant including a group committed to the principles of the historic Orthodox Christian faith. Now, they ended up winning the right to stay on that campus. In fact, they actually turned the hearts of many of the people who were there opposing them to supporting them. And the point that he's making here is that sometimes we hear people talk about how, you know, if you are a kind or if you are, are showing any kind of deference to people who are behaving in vile ways or just flat out opposing you, whether they're being civil or not, if you are thinking, well, I'm going to fight fire with fire, they're being uncivil, and frankly, let's face it, some of the most uncivil people that you're likely to encounter are going to be social justice warriors. Is it really best to take a page from their book? We've got to fight them with the same tactics that they're using. Now, look, I know plenty of people who agree, yes, you should. It's the only way to do anything. But David French makes the case that just maybe the way to win people over is to show decency. Kindness isn't just a tactic, he says. It's actually a commandment. I don't know if you remember, but somebody once said, love your enemies, pray for those that spitefully use you. And he says, I'm not telling you this story to make the case that kindness always works. Sometimes it doesn't work, and it certainly didn't win over all of TCF's opponents. But he says, it would have been imperative to treat our opponents with respect and decency, even if we had lost. And he says, I tell this story to demonstrate that civility and decency aren't incompatible with taking sides. In other words, it doesn't require anyone to fold in the face of angry opposition. Kindness doesn't conflict with conviction, and our commitments to kindness are biblically inseparable from our commitments to justice. We aren't to choose between them. We're supposed to embrace them both. And that's the conundrum I'm putting in front of you today. Do you know where you stand? Do you understand your principles clearly enough? Have you paid the price to know what they are? That you could even treat a person with kindness who is trying to tear down your principles, trying to tear you down. I submit that it's the people who are very unsure of themselves that tend to get angry and violent. Let's strive not to be that person. Let's know who we are. Let's know what we stand for and use kindness. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Heather has been in the mortgage industry for a long time, decades. What that means is she has experience in understanding what uh, lenders need. She understands what the borrowers need. She knows the ins and outs of the process. And she works for a company that has the clout to get you the loan you need without delay. So if you are hearing this message and you're looking for a home or you're looking for a mortgage or a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, whatever the case may be, anywhere within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call her at 435-703-4522. 
in my sponsor links in my daily show notes, you'll see a link for Heather. That's an email link. Click it and you can email her directly. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So in the vein of fighting fire with fire, I want to take this one step further, and I'm going to use a little more uh, a little more relevant example. I think, I don't know how many people are feeling religiously persecuted right now, but I know of a number of people who felt persecuted because they have not taken the vaccine. And I've got a great article. This is from back in April from Susan Dunham on her Medium account, What We Learned from Hating the Unvaccinated. And, and I believe she's writing from Canada. She says, the battlefield is still warm following Canada's war on the unvaccinated. The mandates have let up. Both sides stumble back into something that looks like the old normal, except that there's a fresh and present injury done to the people we tried to break. And no one wants to talk about it. Only weeks ago, it was the admitted goal of our own leaders to make life unlivable for the unvaccinated. And as a deputized collective, we force multiplied that pain, taking the fight into our families, friendships, and workplaces. But she says, today, we face the hard truth that none of it was justified. And in doing that, uncover a precious lesson. Susan Dunham says, it was a quick slide from righteousness to cruelty. And however much we might blame our leaders for the push, we're accountable for stepping into the trap despite better judgment. We knew that waning immunity put vast numbers of the fully vaccinated on par with the shrinking minority of the unvaccinated. Yet we marked them for special persecution. We said they hadn't done the right thing by turning their bodies over to state care, even though we knew that principled opposition to such a thing is priceless in any circumstance. And we truly let ourselves believe that going into another ineffectual lockdown would be their fault, not the fault of toxic policy. And so it was by the willful ignorance of science, civics, and politics that we squeezed the unvaccinated to the degree that we did. She says, we invented a new rubric for the good citizen and failing to be one, failing to be one ourselves, took pleasure in scapegoating anyone who didn't measure up. After months of engineered lockdowns, having someone to blame and to burn simply felt good. So we cannot hold our heads high as if believing we had logic, love, or truth on our side while we viciously wished death upon the unvaccinated. The best we can do is sit in the awareness of our rabid inhumanity for having cast so many aside. Now, she says, many of us who pilloried the noncompliant did it because it seemed like certain victory, like the unvaccinated would never make it through unbroken. Indeed, the promised new normal looked unbeatable, so we sided with it and made punching bags out of the holdouts. But she says, betting against them has been a scathing embarrassment for many of us who've now learned that the mandates only had the power we gave them. It was not through quiet compliance that we avoided endless domination by pharmaceutical companies and medical checkpoints at every doorway. It was thanks to the people we tried to tear down. So Susan Dunham says, For those of us not among the hopeless few that pray for the return of mandates, we might find some inner gratitude for the unvaccinated. We took the bait by hating them, but their perseverance bought us the time to see that we were wrong. It seems like right now the mandates will return, she says, but this time there's hope that more of us will see them for what they are, a rising authoritarianism that has no concern for our well-being. 
If there's an enemy, it's the confidence game of state power and the transparent attempt to tear us apart. Heeding that looks like our best shot at redemption. I mean, that's a pretty big admission. And and it brings up the situation that I know many of us have faced, especially if you're one of those holdouts. You know, if you're one of the people who successfully navigated the waters, you didn't uh, you didn't take the jab. Some people, even at the cost of their jobs, sometimes it cost you friendships. Sometimes family members turned their backs on you. But if you held firm and didn't uh, give in, you know what it's like to see people around you finally start to catch on and go, "Hey, um, maybe we weren't right." in, uh, you know, all the opprobrium we heaped on everybody who didn't go along with the program. And I know it's tempting to think, well, now it's time for some vengeance, right? <laughs> it's, it's payback, baby. But I'm going to ask you, consider avoiding that temptation to lash out or to, uh, to exact that, that uh, revenge on them. You don't need your pound of flesh. The fact that someone has actually come to the realization that, you know what, I was wrong. And maybe some of them actually feel something, you know, of contrition about uh, what they were doing or what they were advocating. The only place I really don't see any contrition is typically on the part of the people who are in power making those decisions. And even there, I'm trying to be magnanimous enough to, to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, they're probably afraid. And I mean really afraid, like they're going to be sitting in some Nuremberg-type dock answering for what they've done. They should be scared. The harm they did was real. And I know it's frustrating, and it frustrates me to see them still cling to, well, but, you know, we'll never know if it was the right thing or not. You know, that's Dr. Fauci. We can never know if the lockdowns worked or not. We know. We know very well. And the unrepentant ones uh, are, are just, you know, the side of insufferable sometimes, especially Dr. Fauci. But the average person who is finally making the connection and saying, you know, that was really unnecessary, or I regret that I went along with it. Some of them are feeling regret that they went ahead and got the jab. Some of them are feeling regret that they piled on and, you know, did what they could to ostracize people, whether it be the maskless or the unjabbed. I know this is hard, but we need these people on our side. And it's not abasing yourself to show them some mercy. This is one of those places where I'm going to invoke the golden rule. And I, again, I, I fully understand there are people who are strongly disagree with me. You're probably yelling it to the speaker right now going, hey, you're out of line here, Hyde. Get back in your lane. But I'm urging you, take the high road. There is no need to gloat. There is no need to lord it over people. There's no need to rub their noses in it like they're a naughty puppy who piddled on the floor. Every one of us has had to fight this battle to figure out, okay, what is right and what is wrong. And even though I, I speak like I have all this certainty and I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say, yes, I remain unjabbed. And I'm, I'm defiant. My line in the sand turned into a trench a long time ago because of the pressure that was brought to bear. But that does not give me any kind of moral authority to treat somebody in a way that I wouldn't want to be treated myself. So for those times when I am wrong or when I have been wrong and I have seen the light and went, ooh, I got to make an adjustment here. I am forever grateful to those people who knew all along that I was wrong and still showed enough love and acceptance to welcome me into their ranks 
as I encountered new truth and assimilated it into my life. We've got to be that kind of people. Yeah, I know it's hard. And my instincts run towards, you know, vengeance <laughs> rather than, you know, reconciliation. It's a, it's a test, and it may be one of the harder tests. I'm convinced, however, that it is the right thing to do. Everybody's somewhere on that journey of trying to get out of the swamp of misinformation and find their way to firmer ground and brighter sunlight. Let's help them make that journey. Because I guarantee someone has been helping you and leaving trail markers along the way so that you could find your way. Let's be kind enough to do that for the people who are following behind us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. If you are into the shooting sports, first of all, I tip my hat to you. It's a great thing. One of the funnest things that I can do with my kids. In fact, my kids beg me, take us to the range. Take us to the range. They just love to get out there and make a joyous noise for freedom, to learn skill at arms. And I know there are people who think, well, that's a terrible thing, teaching kids to shoot guns. But I promise you, as you teach them the responsibilities and the fun that goes along with the shooting sports, they're not the kind of kids who are going to turn into some mass shooter because they understand the responsibility that comes along with the use of firearms. I've seen Spencer Worthington, the founder of HSL Ammo, teach the people around him time and time again, reach out to new shooters and, and just make their experience at the range a great thing. And, of course, to have a great experience at the range, you're going to need some great ammo, HSL Ammo is the source I would point you towards. I try not to spread gossip or to be the equivalent of the Hollywood tattler, but uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about some personalities in this part of the show. In particular, Elon Musk is stepping up in a big way to get a hardcore legal team put together to push back against those trying desperately to put a gag on him. Now, maybe you heard this over the, the weekend, or I guess it was the end of last week. Um, a long time ago, this is more than a year ago, <clears throat> Musk made a comment about, hey, when the inevitable scandal arises uh, involving me, just remember, I was the one who recommended we use the term elongate. Huh? Get it? Elongate, right? And, and okay, it's very clever, but sure enough, like clockwork, here it came. Allegations that Musk paid someone $250,000 after, you know, approaching them or soliciting them for sex and then... I don't know. He, that was the hush money, or so it's alleged. Yeah, he's making a lot of people on the left very, very nervous right now. His uh, move to buy Twitter, his thoughts on free speech, and I've, I've watched his tweets now for some time. I followed him on Twitter and thought, this guy's been red-pilled. He, there are things that he's starting to say with boldness and with uh, a sense of uh, conviction. And it's very refreshing because he's got a pretty large platform right now. Whether this Twitter deal is fully gone through or not, Musk has some pretty, he, he's got some clout. And it's really upsetting some folks. Andrea Widberg has a great article about how he is going on the offensive with a hardcore legal department. She says, Elon Musk is proving to be an exceptionally interesting person. He's been a Democrat throughout his years in America, and he still believes in anthropogenic climate change. 
He's an extraordinary inventor who thinks bigger than most anybody in the world. And like Donald Trump, who probably would have continued as a moderate if the left hadn't gone scorched earth on him, Musk is responding to leftist attacks on him since he announced his plan to buy Twitter, not by meekly retreating, but by announcing that he intends to fight them all the way. So last week, within a day of Musk tweeting that he intends to vote Republican in the next election, Business Insider published an article in which a woman's friend claims that the woman told her that Musk propositioned the woman, grabbed her butt, and exposed himself to her. The proof is that Musk paid the woman $250,000 to go away. Some proof. Now, to someone as wealthy as Musk, 250000 is chump change and well worth the price to get rid of a nuisance lawsuit that would require him to appear for a deposition and respond to other pretrial discovery and then go to court, creating the risk of having a judge or jury decide to punish him for being rich and famous. Musk knew this was coming. As he tweeted out, political attacks on me will escalate dramatically in the coming months. He also castigated the entire Democratic Party. This is his tweet from May 18th of this year. In the past, I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindness party. But they've become the party of division and hate. So I can no longer support them and will vote Republican. Judging by the relentless hate stream from the far left, he says this tweet was spot on. He also was able to put the attacks in perspective. He says, the attacks against me should be viewed through a political lens. This is their standard, despicable playbook, but he says nothing will deter me from fighting a good for a good future and your right to free speech. And he also had a good laugh about them. This is where he says, finally, we get to use Ellen Gate as a scandal name. It's kind of perfect. But Andrea Woodberg says all is not trenchant or accurate tweets. Musk is out for blood. He says so straight out. This is a tweet from May 20th. Tesla is building a hardcore litigation department where we directly initiate and execute lawsuits. The team will report directly to me. Please send three to five bullet points describing evidence of exceptional ability. And then he tweeted, my commitment, we will never seek victory in a just case against us, even if we will probably win. We will never surrender or settle an unjust case against us, even if we will probably lose. And when he was looking for these hardcore uh, street fighter attorneys, he says, uh, I'm looking for hardcore street fighters, not white shoe lawyers like Perkins or Cooley who thrive on corruption. There will be blood. And he asks people, please include links to cases you've tried. Now, Andrea Woodberg says, in addition to giving everyone fair warning that if they push, he will push back much harder. Perfect game theory. Musk is also using his enormous platform to broadcast the Democrats' political sins and again to say that he's planning to fight. So there was a a tweet from Representative Jim Jordan. This is about some of the revelations that came out last week about, uh, about Russiagate. Christopher Steele created the dossier. Glenn Simpson sold it to the press. Michael Sussman took it to the FBI. And Democrats and the media lied to you about it all. Elon Musk replied to that tweet saying, all true. Bet most people still don't know that a Clinton campaign lawyer using campaign funds created an elaborate hoax about Trump and Russia. Makes you wonder what else is fake. Someone else had responded, Elon's out for blood now. Love to see it. And Musk himself responded to that tweet saying, I am indeed out for blood. Makes you wonder what else is fake. Now, that doesn't exactly sound like an abstract rumination. 
It sounds like he talks in, warning leftists that he has a good idea exactly what's fake, and whether he purchases Twitter or not, he'll make sure everybody knows. Sundance at the conservative treehouse is darn pleased about these developments. In fact, he's especially pleased about that Hillary tweet because he thinks it may take someone like Musk to break through the stranglehold leftist institutions have on the brains and knowledge base of non-political Americans. Sundance says, quote, We must remember the vast majority of people in the U.S. have no idea the scale of corruption that took place within the Trump, Russia, and Spygate operations. This trial is becoming a vending machine for red pill distribution. Also, keep in mind that where you were a few years ago. Imagine as an example all of these newly awakened people finally discovering and accepting the FBI are the bad guys. It like, it, she, he says it likely took many conservative treehouse readers multiple years and dozens of examples before that acceptance was grounded. He says these are bitter pill acceptances, but eventually do lead to major changes in the social fabric and cohesion of a nation. But it's a painful journey. Final thoughts? He says do not dismiss the importance of what Elon Musk is doing. In addition to introducing millions of Americans to something they are newly experiencing, this shift in cultural opinion is akin to Musk playing the role of John Galt and swinging the social control pendulum away from the government. End quote. I mean, when I read that, I kind of feel encouraged. Andrea Woodberg says, remember, sometimes things must get worse before they can get better, and that in fortunate nations, the right person appears at the right time, whether that's Joan of Arc, Winston Churchill, Donald Trump, or maybe Elon Musk. Now, if it sounds like, gee, Bri, you're becoming kind of a fanboy of Musk. Well, to the extent that I see him pushing back against the authoritarian left, yes. And to the extent I see him pushing back against their enablers on the right, the authoritarian right, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely very approving of what he's doing. And to me, there's also that possibility. It makes me want to dust off uh, and, and see what uh, Jim Quinn over at the Burning Platform is saying. Quinn has become one of my favorite uh, observers on uh, fourth-turning methodology. And one of the things that you see during a fourth-turning crisis is the great champion stepping up. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you an article that wondered, is Putin possibly one of those great champions? Is Xi Jinping one of those champions? When I look at some of the stuff that Musk is doing, I wonder if perhaps Elon Musk is a great champion. See, the amazing thing is great champions don't always have to be a cowboy in a white hat wearing, you know, I mean, astride a noble white steed and, you know, riding in to save the day. But they're people with leadership ability to make the hard decisions during times of crisis and to generate enough confidence in the people around them that people are willing to follow their lead. As you can guess, that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. FDR was a very clear example of a great champion. Abraham Lincoln was a clear example of a great champion. And I'm not uh, using either one of them as examples of and they were the best of their kind. I think both of them did some pretty amazing harm. But the point is, we are in a state of crisis. And I think Musk's leadership is actually coming at a very opportune time. So I wish him success in what he's doing. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's give a quick shout-out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That is Dr. Ward Wagner. I'd like you to check out their website. I've got a link, actually, at my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, dixiechiro.com. If you want to just pop that into your browser. Specifically, Dr. Wagner has asked me to reach out to three different groups of people. Anyone who has suffered car accident injuries, talk to the folks at his office and learn how you can receive chiropractic care with no out-of-pocket costs. If you have bulging or herniated discs, first of all, my condolences. That's been dealing with that myself, and that is not much fun. Here's a $99 intro special, which consists of two treatments plus massage. Or if you know someone who is dealing with neuropathy, here's the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. Go to DixieCairo.com to get all the details. I'm going to take a little bit longer to talk about Elon Musk. And note that uh, watching him get red-pilled in real time has been an eye-opener for a lot of other people who are also seeking higher ground. Got a great article here from Roger Kimball. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. Signs and portents. Elon Musk's growing political maturity. He says, a few weeks ago, Exxon announced that it was banning the display of pride and BLM flags at its headquarters in Houston. Now, there was a ripple of unhappiness, but nothing was burned down. The media attention was muted. And the world went about its business as before. Across the country, school board elections are tossing out woke ideologues and partisans of critical race theory and replacing what amounts to gay pornography in the curriculum with more wholesome fare. The Biden administration keeps running into roadblocks, most recently a judicial order halting its efforts to rescind Title 42, a Trump-era emergency order that turned away would-be immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. A few days ago, Biden's absurd disinformation governance board was shuttered and its pathetic director, Nina Jankowitz, sucked back into the memory hole once she came. And then on Friday, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Mook, testified, what do you know, that his boss knew all about and in fact approved the spurious efforts to frame Donald Trump as a Russian asset, contrary to what she and her handlers have said ever since before Biden or Hunter Biden took his laptop to be repaired. And then there is Elon Musk. Now, Roger Kimball says, I've long been a fan of this rocket man, notwithstanding his mantras about sustainable transport and other sops from the green agenda. Hitherto, he says, my enthusiasm was for his technological prowess, his hard work and his amazing products. But he says, now I find myself applauding his political savvy and efforts on behalf of free speech. Princeton University and other one-party bastions of conformity and self-congratulation should ponder Musk's central observation about free speech. Quote, when it's someone you don't like saying something you don't like, that's when it actually matters. End quote. Kimball says the world was stunned last month when Musk took a 9.2% share in Twitter and then announced that he intended to buy the company outright. The anguished skirling of the Twitterati, alarmed that a platform advertised as promoting free expression, might be forced to live up to its mission statement, was music to the ears of the unwoke, who could hear the clock ticking on this enemy of consecutive thought and political maturity. Now, he says, we haven't heard the last of them, just as Musk predicted his promise to restore free speech to Twitter, even, dear God in heaven, to the extent of welcoming back Donald Trump to the platform, sent them right around the bend. And Musk compounded his tort by admitting that he did not believe Twitter's declaration that 5% or less of its apparent users were bots 
or spam. And the hits just keep on coming. Not only is Musk looking into the question of Twitter's candor, he's also likely to decrease his offering price when he figures out just how many users are fake. If he said in a recent interview you were contemplating buying a house and the owner told you 5% of its structure had termites, that would be one thing. But if it turned out that 80 or 90% of the structure were infested, that would be something else entirely. How much worse can it get for the entrenched forces of conformity? And the answer is a lot worse. On top of everything else, Musk has just announced that he moved from being a moderate Democrat to being a moderate Republican. Oh, man. Oh, man. Did you hear that, Mabel? I've just switched from moderate D to moderate R, he tweeted, as I think many independent voters would have done. Salt in the wound time. We know the magnitude of this trend in November. I think it's big. These are Musk's words. Roger Kimball says, me too. Or perhaps I should say, hashtag me too. Musk predicted attacks against him would escalate once he changed his, his changed political feelings were made public. Back on May 18th, he wrote, In the past, I voted Democrat. Because they were mostly the kindness party, but now they've become the party of division and hate, so I can no longer support them and will vote Republican. Now watch their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. End quote. Roger Kimball says, I like that this was followed by a popcorn emoji. And indeed, the dirty tricks are flowing in from all sides, the latest being an allegation by a flight attendant that Musk acted inappropriately back in 2016. The charge will not go anywhere. Musk is robust in fighting false charges, but perhaps it will fulfill one longstanding wish. If there's ever a scandal about me, he tweeted in March 2021, please call it Elongate. Let's do it. The story of Elon Musk's growing political maturity is not a one-off or an individual data point. Roger Kimball says it's part of a process, a gathering sea change. He says what we're seeing is not so much a pendulum swinging back from the extremism of identity politics as the eruption throughout the society of contrary fires. Musk's coming of age is a sign or portent of a larger shift in the sensibility of our time. Now, he does point out this shift won't happen all at once, and there will be holdouts and reversals, but what we are witnessing is a sort of spiritual reveille, an awakening from wokeness. The extent of that awakening will not, as Musk said, be evident until the November election. Indeed, he says, I predict that it won't be fully evident until the 2024 election when, further prediction, Donald Trump wins yet again, this time beyond the margin of fraud and dissimulation. Roger Kimball says, let's see if I'm right. Be an interesting possibility, wouldn't it? And I don't mean to disappoint anybody, but I'm just going to come right out and let you know. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could support Donald Trump. It's not that I, the first time he ran, I did not vote for him. The second time he ran, you know, when he ran for reelection, I did vote for him. I don't think he's the worst thing that ever happened to this country by a long shot, but please hear me out. I don't think Donald Trump is necessarily the answer that we're looking for either. And I know we're stuck with this binary choice. Well, it's going to be him or it's going to be Joe Biden or, you know, Joe Biden's puppetry team, whoever it is that's controlling him and his teleprompter. I think uh, depending on how things go this November, and, and I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but the way things have been trending, the way the polls have been showing support swinging against the Democrats, I think we will see some pretty strong efforts to do everything possible to shut down 
these midterm elections. Monkeypox comes to mind. Just, you know, oh, it's a terrible epidemic or pandemic, and we've got to shut everything down, lock it down even harder than before. You know, we've got to make sure it's nothing but mail-in ballots. And anyway, if you think there were hijinks in the 2020 election, I think the hijinks are about to begin. There may be other things that will come up. Um, I wouldn't put it past the powers that be to get to World War III kicked off with direct and open conflict with nuclear-armed Russia. I'm not saying that uh, I think that a nuclear war is right there on the horizon, but can we at least acknowledge the reality that when you have two nuclear powers, both behaving in belligerent fashion, yes, I'm including the U.S. as one of the belligerents, if not the prime belligerent, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is likely to happen? Caitlin Johnstone had a comment, and I'm going to have to paraphrase this because I don't have it in front of me, but it was something to the effect of, well, hang on a second. Actually, it's good enough. I'm going to find it and quote it for you just because I want to see if I can get this this correct. She talks about how difficult it is to believe that uh, the U.S. is just trying to encircle Russia and China so that it can protect everything peaceful and good in the world. Do you really believe that the leadership of the United States government and its compadres, you know, in in other uh, in, in other governments, NATO, for instance, do you really think that's what they're trying to do? See, I see a lot of imperial behavior on the part of our own leaders, which to me absolutely undermines any moral authority they might have. So I'm not seeing good guys in this one. And I think it's really naive when people say, well, you know, Mitt Romney, I'm looking at you. Well, if we uh, if we see the need to confront them nu- with a nuclear ca- capability or um, initiating some kind of nuclear strike or other, you know, direct uh, conflict with Russia, you know, it's it's probably going to work out for the best. It just seems like the, the folks in Washington, D.C., the establishment, particularly its neocon wing, they are chomping at the bit. Maybe it's because they know that war makes people fearful, war makes people fall in line, and that will blunt some of the criticism being being uh, directed at them. I'm urging you, don't fall for it, at least not until you've had a chance to think it through. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is all about encouraging you to think as clearly and independently as possible. So I'm, I'm inviting you to disagree with me whenever you think it's necessary. Because truth be told, I don't have all the answers, and I won't pretend that I do. There are some things I feel like I've paid the price to where I feel comfortable with committing to the truth of something, but I also try to keep an open mind, and I also understand that so much of what I know about any given subject was told to me by someone else, which means if I really want to know something, I've got to be willing to dig, do my own original thinking, my own original research, and come to my own conclusions, rather than just parrot, you know, what somebody's told me to say. I'm urging you to take a similar approach. 
with the full knowledge that eventually you're going to outgrow me. You won't need me. You'll be like, thanks, Brian, but I got it from here. And on you'll go on your journey towards the light. So I'm actually happy to see that happen. Because I believe that uh, the the kind of leadership that we need today is not, you know, somebody creating more followers. I don't want a massive audience of followers. I want to reach the hearts of those people out there who are leaders, who recognize that they have leadership capacity and responsibility and are willing to step up and act on it. And I think those numbers are actually pretty small, but it doesn't matter. Because they're going to go out there and they're going to create more leaders. Because that's what good leaders do. Got some great sponsors who make the show possible. Let me give a quick thanks to them. GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, and also Dixie Chiropractic, which is DixieChiro.com. All right, this is the topic on so many people's minds, and and I, I stay unplugged from the media as much as possible, but it's very clear the memo has gone out, and you've no doubt caught wind of the growing media fervor over monkeypox. Oh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's so scary. And I got a great article here from Mike Whitney pointing out how convenient this outbreak is just as the World Health Organization is in the midst of seeking greater power. His approach is, hey, fool me twice, shame on me. Starts with a quote from Robin Monati. I can't believe it's monkeypox season already, and I haven't even taken down my Ukrainian decorations yet. He says, Bill Gates' prediction that the world would face an unexpected smallpox outbreak is miraculously unfolding. Should we be surprised? In this case, Mike Whitney says, I'm not. Here's the money quote that was delivered by Gates six months before the first case was recorded. Quote, this is from November 6th, 2021, Bill Gates in Sky News. He says, It'll probably take about a billion a year for a temp- for a pandemic task force at the World Health Organization level, which is doing the surveillance and actually doing what I call germ games, where you practice, you say, okay, what if a bioterrorist brought smallpox to 10 airports? You know, how would the world respond to that? End quote. Now, uh, Mike Whitney says, you know, one can only marvel at Gates' extraordinary powers of perception. He's like some kind of software soothsayer able to divine the future from the entrails of animals. Is it that, or does he have a crystal ball tucked away somewhere in the bowels of his Lake Washington mansion? Whatever it is, it's truly astonishing. Here's more from the World Socialist website. An unprecedented outbreak of monkeypox virus has officially spread to 10 countries outside of Africa, with 107 confirmed or suspected cases reported as of this writing, Nine cases in the U.K., 34 in Portugal, 32 in Spain, one in France, two in Belgium, one in Sweden, three in Italy, 22 in Canada, two in the United States, one in Australia. Much remains unknown about what is causing the outbreak, which is the most geographically dispersed and rapidly spreading monkeypox outbreak since the virus was first discovered in 1958. In the coming days and weeks, more data and scientific understanding will emerge But already, there is profound concern within the scientific community and among the public, which has found wide expression on social media. Okay, end quote. So, the most rapidly spreading monkeypox outbreak since the virus was first discovered in 1958. 
Mike Whitney says, I wonder if that rapidly spreading part has something to do with the way that researchers have been tweaking the gain of function of these unique pathogens in order to make them more contagious and more lethal. Is that what's going on? Well, he says, we'll probably never know. And is it fair to ask whether monkeypox might be another lab-generated virus that was conducted in the 300 or so Pentagon-funded secret labs sprinkled around the world that are presently conducting a massive war on humanity to further the ambitions of billionaire elites who are committed to reducing the global population while imposing strict police state surveillance on every sentient being on planet Earth? Yeah, we probably won't get an answer to that one either. Now, in the interest of fairness, though, he says, we should mention that reputable media outlets like Newsweek magazine have refuted the claim that Gates made the prediction that we allude to above. Here's Newsweek's explanation. Quote, while Gates has talked about the possibility of bioterrorist smallpox attacks in the past, his comments have, drawn, have been drawn slightly out of context and don't mention monkeypox. End quote. Slightly out of context? You mean Gates did not draw attention to a particular infectious disease, smallpox, that magically reemerged from extinction just months later? What context is the author talking about? We'd like to know. Mike Whitney says, strictly speaking, it doesn't matter what Newsweek says or doesn't say. After all, Gates has become the embodiment of everything that's wrong with today's public health Gestapo, which is why he's a magnet for criticism. And whether he's been treated fairly or not, a sizable number of people believe quite strongly that Gates is the mastermind behind a plan to use lab-generated infectious diseases to subjugate the global population in order to establish a tyrannical new order to subjugate the global population and, and, and to control them by various elites like him, by voracious elites, rather, like himself. Mike Whitney says the World Health Organization's new sovereignty-eviscerating treaty further underscores this point. In fact, it seems to suggest that Gates and his fellow travelers believe their lifelong ambition to rule the world is now within grasp. Here's a summary of this World Health Organization pandemic treaty. Measures specifically provided for in the regulations include lockdowns, hard borders and quarantine zones, vaccine passports, mandatory contact tracing, mandatory health tests, mandatory removal and quarantine, global, global government control. Well, that sounds so reasonable. I mean, come on, we've seen these things used to address COVID. And now the World Health Organization is voting on a treaty that would apply the same standard to every single nation that's a part of that treaty. That's kind of spooky. And the timing, you have to admit the timing. And now there's a monkeypox outbreak. Why, it's exactly the little push that we need to get things to move. Mike Whitney says, in researching this article... I stumbled across a number of tidbits that readers might find interesting. For example, I discovered there's been a tabletop exercise simulating a global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox that took place in March of 2021. It's astonishing how many of these preparatory drills seem to take place just prior to some particularly horrific event. Can we dismiss them all as mere coincidences? Check out this blurb from the Brownstone Institute. Media outlets around the world are on red alert over the world's first ever global outbreak of monkeypox in mid-May 2022, just one year after an international biosecurity conference in Munich held a simulation of a global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox beginning in mid-May 2022. 
It also says monkeypox was first identified in 1958, but there's never been a global monkeypox outbreak outside of Africa until now. In the exact week of the exact month predicted by the biosecurity folks in their pandemic simulation. Take these guys to Vegas. And finally, from the Brownstone Institute, the global monkeypox outbreak occurring on the exact timeline predicted by a biosecurity simulation of a global monkeypox outbreak a year prior bears a striking resemblance to the outbreak of COVID-19 just months after event 201, a simulation of a coronavirus pandemic, almost exactly like COVID-19. Now, there's actually a video linked in that excerpt above that says scientists have decided that this monkeypox virus was engineered. This was part of the simulated outbreak. What do you think that means? Uh Uh-huh. We're seeing far fewer cases where governments took early and decisive actions. Could it mean we better prepare ourselves for another round of experimental clot shots? Is that what it means? There's more to this article by Mike Whitney. I'm going to leave it for you to discover. I think it's well worth your while, though. Take a little bit of time and check this out. I'm not telling you you have to believe it, but... If you have any inkling that we were fooled in a big way when it came to the overstating of the danger of COVID, etc., you might want to take a real close look at anything being told to you about monkeypox and the need for all of us to shut up and fall in line and do what we're told. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to send some love in the direction of SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. This wonderful business is located in southern Utah, and it has everything, and I mean everything you could possibly need to not only get into the game when it comes to sewing or embroidery or to long-arm quilting, but also to to stay in the game and to to make it part of your family heritage. The more I look at it, the more I realize, you know, this this is one of those skills that will always be valuable, at least as long as people are wearing clothes. If we get to the point where, you know, clothing optional becomes the norm, well then, what can I say? But for clothes, for blankets, for pillows, for just repairing the clothing you have, it seems like a great bet. And the wonderful thing about uh, about Sewing and Quilting Center is they not only sell machines from the very entry-level models up to the very top-of-the-line high-end models like long-arm quilters, they service what they sell. They'll teach you how to use what you've bought from them. Free classes to show you how to get the most out of your machine. And they have all the supplies, the thread, the needles, everything you need to make it all work. Check them out. There's a link in my show notes to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. You know, one of the greatest gifts that we can give our kids is the ability to become a can-do individual. Lenore Skenazy has a great article published on internet, inter, let's try that again, intellectualtakeout.org that spells out the lost milestones of childhood and also talks about the power of seeing your kid blossom, which she says is more powerful than worrying about their every move. Lenore Skenazy says, with the popularity of Netflix's Old Enough, that's the Japanese show featuring kids ages 2 to 6 running errands, 
parents here in America have been wondering what age their kids can start safely doing the same. So she says, allow me to give my opinion. After 15 years of studying just this topic, now obviously, every neighborhood and every child is different, which is why it's up to the parent, not the neighbors or the in-laws or even the state, to decide when kids are ready for some independence. But she says, this is hard to figure out in a culture where childhood's parameters have been shrinking faster than the rainforest. In fact, she says, look at this amazing map of how children lost the right to roam in four generations. And this map will show you. An 88-year-old great-grandpa says he used to wander six miles as a child. His son-in-law, a grandpa now in his 60s, used to walk a mile in his childhood. His daughter, age 36, walked half a mile to school. And now the great-grandchild, age 8, is not allowed to be on the end of his street and barely even goes there. His mom drives him to school. That sound familiar? Lenore Skenazy says that's been the story in much of the English-speaking world leading to first-world problems like skyrocketing rates of childhood depression and anxiety. So when a parent is thinking, is it safe to let my child run some errands alone? They should also be thinking, is it safe not to let my child do anything independently, considering the rates of serious childhood mental health issues that are going up as childhood independence is going down? So that then is the first rule of thumb. She says, don't assume perfect safety can be achieved by keeping your kids in a Rapunzel-like state. Think outside the tower. So, how about walking to school alone? Once again, it depends on the child, the neighborhood, and all sorts of things like whether there are sidewalks or stop signs or roving bands of rabid wolves. Parents should just walk to school or the store or whatever with their child a few times to teach them how to navigate. She says, it's hard for you to cross the street because there's so much traffic, so of course, it'll be hard for them too. It's simply a matter of teaching them to look both ways, which is what I was taught as a kid. Look left, look right, look left again. Then our job as parents is to make sure they understand when, why, and how to do this. Now, what's interesting about old enough is that it's not that the parents aren't nervous, and it's not that the kids aren't sometimes a little scared too. It's that worry alone is not considered reason enough not to let a child start doing something. The reason the show is so charming is that the kids and parents triumph over some worries and hiccups. She's got a good point here. There can be no growth without trying something new and a little bit daunting. If you're feeling comfortable, you're probably not growing, is how I would explain it. Lenore Skenazy says, What I've seen over and over again... And I actually hosted a similar show called World's Worst Mom on Discovery Life TV, now it's on YouTube, is that the fear is far more fragile than it seems. See, on her show, she says, I took kids of extremely anxious parents away from them for a couple of afternoons and sent them to to do things like climb a tree, ride the bus, go get some bread. Even one mom who was still feeding her 10-year-old as if he was a baby or toddler ended up insanely proud of her son When with her prodding, with Lenore Skenazy's prodding, he learned to ride a bike and then went on an overnight. Mom's fear was replaced by pride and joy. And guess what? So was his. It happens in old enough. And it happens even with very nervous, anxious parents in our country. But she says seeing your kid blossom is even more powerful than worrying about their every move. Pride and love melt away the anxiety in both generations. Maybe your own kid is old enough for this transformation, too. 
Interesting thought. I've got a link to her article. It's in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would strongly encourage you to do so. I'll include at least eight good articles in each uh, each edition of the show notes that you can read at your leisure. You can follow the links within them and get yourself a pretty solid understanding of pretty much any topic covered on the show. But I'm also thinking about this in terms of just the, the practicality of helping your kids become more self-resilient and more self-reliant, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Resilience is a part of this. Been having this conversation actually with, uh, with a number of friends about, you know, how do you, how do you teach a kid to be strong and to be okay with, with encountering difficulty? See, there's, there's a false premise out there that teaches us that, well, you know, if you're doing your job as a parent, your kids should never encounter any kind of challenge or difficulty or stress in their lives. In other words, you're going to make it as easy for them as possible so they don't have to struggle like you and I did. And the wisest people I've known are the ones who've said, I don't want my kid to have that struggle-free existence. Like the butterfly coming out of its cocoon, you need that struggle. And you know what? They need the ability to make mistakes too. So, you know, this is hard. And I flunked this test many times before I realized, oh, wait, they need to have the ability to fail. So when your kid comes to you, Dad, can I make a grilled cheese sandwich? And you know darn good and well that smoke detector is going to be going off in about five minutes. You still give them the opportunity. I like how Lenore Skenazy says, look, like, for instance, taking them to the store, walking them to school. You can show them the right way to do it. But at some point, you've got to be willing to turn them loose and let them figure it out for themselves. And it's a guarantee on most things they're going to be making some mistakes. I remember at five years old, my mom walking me to school and my friend's moms, you know, they all walked us to kindergarten. And I think that only happened maybe once or twice. And then we were on our own. And, you know, for the most part, it worked very well. There was, of course, the day that my friends and I, I don't remember what exactly got into us. We took a slightly different route home and ended up walking past a construction site. And there was this home under construction and it was just framed, no windows or doors or anything in there, but... We were standing on this hill above this new home under construction, and I don't know what got into us, but as five-year-olds, it sure seemed like, you know, the smartest thing we could do is stand here and throw rocks at this construction site. Now, nobody was working at the site, so there was nobody there to chase us off, but we stood there and were happily throwing rocks and making this tremendous racket, hearing them rattle around off the boards inside and, you know, seeing if we could get them through the open windows and whatnot. And pretty soon, uh, one of one of my friend's moms came and... <laughs> gently corrected us and herded us on back down the, the path to get home. So, yeah, even even the kids will make mistakes from time to time. Still, it was a good learning experience, and we had absolute confidence from that time forward that if mom says, walk to school, I didn't need somebody to hold my hand and, you know, sing me love songs on the way there. Think about the risks you were allowed to take as a kid. Would you allow your kids or your grandkids to take those kind of risks? And if the answer is no, the problem may not be that the world's changed so much. It may be that you and I have a bad mindset. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. 
Want to say a couple of words about lifesavingfood.com? I don't know if you have been following some of the news headlines, but uh, it's a little bit spooky when you read about what is happening economically as well as in the food supply chain. And, you know, I try not to just glom onto, well, here's the worst possible news. It looks like we're all going to be starving in about six months. Okay, I don't need that kind of uh, uh, sensational approach. But I think there are some legitimately bad things that are happening that that, uh, will come on very gradually and then very suddenly. And to me, the smart bet is while you have the opportunity, while there is still plenty of food and plenty of things on the shelves and, and still plenty of inventory to be put away, you should probably go ahead and act sooner than later. Again, I'm not trying to scare you, but it's very clear that from the, the people in authority, several different choke points are being created or have been created that are going to drastically uh, in, impact not just our supply of food here in America, but the world supply of food. That's something you ought to take very seriously, especially if you have any inkling of how historically food has been used as a mechanism of control. Buy yourself some time. Buy yourself options. Lifesavingfood.com is one of the ways you can do that. So you want to know what real freedom feels like? Well, I'm, I, for, forgive my language here. This is the, this is the title of a, an article by Gary Barnett. I do not give a damn what other people think. This is an indication of respect. And he starts with a quote from Harold Pinter from a book called Conversations with Pinter. I don't give a damn what what other people think. It's entirely their own business. I'm not writing for other people. And this is an attitude that if you're, again, you're serious about being free, you've got to learn to embrace this. Well, it sounds uncomfortable, Brian. It is at first. And then you wonder how you ever lived without it or why you ever gave yourself over to needing the approval of other people. Gary Barnett says, now that we understand each other, it's time to clear the air on a few matters. And he says, if my comments here seem disagreeable or offended in any way, just remember, I don't give a damn. I don't mean this disrespectfully. It's just that your thoughts are yours and mine are mine. I have no time to waste worrying about what others think about me, what I believe, what I know, or what I write. If I were to spend my days wringing my hands over such nonsense, my entire life would consist of only worry over things of which I have no power to change, not that I would anyway. It's not that I do not have curiosity, compassion, or even agreement with some of the thoughts and ideas of others, you see. It's just that it makes no difference what you or I think about each other's opinions, only that we are honest with ourselves. With that said, he says, I will outline some of my positions so there is no misunderstanding and no doubt as to where I stand. Before we go on with what he stands for, I strongly recommend, if you haven't taken the time to write down, I'm I'm not going to call it a manifesto because that seems like a really poisonous word right now, but a, a simple document, a simple declaration of these are the things that I believe. This is what I stand for. If you haven't done that, you owe it to yourself to do so. It will give you clarity. It'll take things out of the abstract, just rattling around in your head, and put them into the tangible, in black and white, on paper. You might even be a little surprised at what you learn about yourself. So for Gary Barnett, he says, you know, if you want to know where I stand, here goes. 
First, he says, I am an anarchist, pure and simple, which means I am not conservative or liberal, a misused word, not left or right, Republican or Democrat or libertarian for that matter. Now, he says, for those unable to comprehend proper language or who are not willing to do the five minutes of research necessary to understand the real meanings of words, I will explain. Anarchy, from the French, Greek, and Latin roots of our language, means in essence without rulers or without rule, nothing more. In other words, it means no belief in government or any one or any group ruling over another. It does not mean total chaos, rioting, property destruction, violence, lawlessness, or any other such bastardized meanings falsely attributed by political propagandists and accepted by the ignorant populations of today. That's quite a red pill, huh? He says, because of this, I also believe in total non-aggression or no use of force against another without legitimate cause. Now, cause does not mean the state warring against its own or other countries. It means in actual defense of self and family in the presence of active or physical threat. Or intent to cause harm to a person or property or infringement on liberty. Self-defense has no limits, in my opinion, other than once the threat is squelched, all force must cease. Some, like the great Murray Rothbard, understood in, in reality the idea of non-aggression, but many take them to, the term too literally and simplistically, usually in an effort to destroy the very essence of the axiom. They desire to search for alternative methods and exceptions in order to destroy the very natural idea of non-aggression. This is a gross contradiction. All boils down to the individual, not the ridiculous collective common good, and that's why those who disagree with non-aggression are always politically motivated. That's a good point. He says, It stands to reason, then, that I abhor war, all war. War is brutal and murderous aggression by nation-states. Considering this country called the United States of America, it is always initiated and participated in aggression and war, at least 94% of its existence. It matters not which war is considered, whether the heinous war against American Indians, the war of northern aggression called the Civil War, World War I or World War II, the Vietnam War, the Middle Eastern War, or the so-called War on or of Terror, or any other war or conflict purposely manufactured and prosecuted by the ruling classes. War is simply a tool used by the state to acquire money and property by theft, to advance geopolitical agendas, to gain power and control not only over the pretended enemy, but in most cases to gain power over its own people, to extinguish freedom of the individual, and to eliminate populations. He just comes right out and says there is no such thing as a good war. Now this means that the enforcement arms of government, whether state or federal police, the state and federal courts, the entirety of the military, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the IRS, and any and all other bureaucracies built and sustained by government enforcement services are, generally speaking, atrocious by nature. They are simply the lieutenants and henchmen of the political and criminal mafia that is the U.S. government. Their mission is not one of justice, protection, mercy, or compassion. It's one of brute force, meant to operate on orders given by the ruling class. As a whole, he says they are very corrupt, dangerous, and in most cases evil. The very idea that individual responsibility and liability for heinous acts perpetrated by those uh, accepting orders from above is absent or not evident is anathema to any moral or ethical society. So he says, in view of what I've previously stated, I think it's important I should discuss my views on the U.S. Constitution. 
Immediately, it should be evident that any piece of paper or parchment drafted by politicians and being called the law of the land should first be vehemently distrusted before being heavily scrutinized. Considering this particular document, one revered by most and even held sacred by many as guided by God, is necessary for a little background. He says, Our initial contribution, which was anything but perfect, were the Articles of Confederation. These articles allowed for no president, for no power for the federal government to tax any state or citizen directly, no federal control of commerce, no total power over money, as the states retained most powers, with Congress simply being the final arbiter. On paper, at least, these articles did actually restrict the national or federal government. The current Constitution, however, destroyed completely that premise as all restrictions on federal power disappeared with the new Constitution. As Gary Barnett has stated on many occasions, can anyone even imagine today a few politicians on their own and in secret, Democrats or Republicans or any combination of the two, overhauling the government, creating a new set of rules, replacing the current government, and drafting those rules by secret ballot? Politicians, legal scholars, professors, academics, and any number of others are fond of claiming the U.S. Constitution severely limits government and protects the individual from tyranny. They claim that all federal powers are explicitly limited due to the written restrictions contained in that founding document. But he says this is simply not true. Where are these so-called restrictions? There are none as far as I see in Article 1, Section 8. And this is the one article that outlines all the powers of Congress. I've got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on on our own break here. Uh, He talks about how there are no such things as constitutional rights and so forth, but his bottom line is government is always the enemy and never the solution. Negating government interference, ignoring its mandates and commands, practicing personal responsibility, eliminating all government power in favor of the individual, and striking it down at every opportunity can only bring more peace and harmony, freedom, cooperation, and an end to war against all of us and others. So think what you will, he says, and I will do the same, and as long as mutual respect is present, well then, he says, uh, we'll all be better off, and a better world will be the result. I agree with a lot of what he's saying here. I, for one, do hold that the Constitution, I think, was a, a remarkable instrument. And I believe when it's followed, it actually does a remarkable job of providing us with good government. That's okay if we agree to disagree. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. One of the things that I miss about my carefree days of when I was uh, underemployed, underpaid, but having so much fun is I had so much time to read. And, uh, of course, since growing up and taking the responsibilities of an adult on my shoulders, um, I don't have as much reading time as I once had. But to me, the idea of the perfect vacation is me in a comfortable place to sit with good lighting and plenty of time and something great to read. And I'm talking a tangible, physical book in my hands, not just an electronic, you know, nook or something like that. I'm, I'm, I love the feeling of pages under my fingers, and I love the idea of reading. 
and I think I just got some inspiration for another book that I'm going to have to drag out and read. I was reading uh, on LewRockwell.com today an article by Ira Katz about that hideous strength, which is a C.S. Lewis story. And and I, I thought this was a very relevant story. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite writers for, for a number of reasons. But I want you to hear Ira Katz's take on this particular book, That Hideous Strength. He says, when I'm on a driving trip with my family, it's my daughter's music or nothing on the media player. So I took the opportunity on a recent solo trip to listen to an audiobook, Out of the Silent Planet. That's the first of the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis. Now he says, I've read a lot of Lewis, but I'm not normally a fan of science fiction or fantasy. But Heather Haying mentioned this book on the Dark Horse podcast that she co-hosts with her husband, Brett Weinstein. So when I came across the free audio version, I went for it. As free audio versions of the other two novels in the trilogy, the uh, uh, Paralandra and That Hideous Strength were also available, I listened to them too. But he says, here I'm going to write about That Hideous Strength. And by the way, he links to an online version of the story. So if you don't want to buy the book, you can actually read it online, or the story anyway. In Out of the Silent Planet, Dr. Elwin Ransom, a professor of philosophy, a branch of knowledge that deals with the structure, historical development, and relationships of a language or languages, is kidnapped and transported to Mars. While there, he meets the planet's various inhabitants and discovers the Earth is exiled from the rest of the solar system. In Paralandra, Ransom is transported to Venus, called Paralandra, to continue a battle against the evil forces exiled on Earth, but doing mischief on this new planet. In both books, Lewis went wild describing the landscape, the beings, and their languages of the Mars or of the planets Mars and Venus. Now the influence of fellow members of the Inklings is apparent. I suppose this is all good if you like that sort of thing. But the story, that hideous strength, is set on Earth. A scientific think tank called NICE, which stands for National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, is secretly in touch with demonic entities who plan to assume control of the Earth. Dr. Ransom is leading a small band against great potential danger to the human race and the planet. Now, Ira Katz says, 25 years ago, I taught a seminar for first-year university students. The concept for the course came from the university. This course is intended to induct the student into an intellectual discussion of substantive issues and to enhance their speaking, writing, and bibliographic skills. He says, I described my version of the seminar in the syllabus. The topic of this particular seminar is truth. The seminar will begin with readings from philosophy and theology, which will lead to the question of the meaning of personal existence and hence the truth of morals. We will next consider the role of truth in the academic disciplines, history, and science. The following topic is the application of truth in the professions such as law, journalism, and politics. The final areas of discussion will be on the arts and aesthetics in that when we call something good... We imply an objective, do we imply an objective truth, rather? And he says, I thought a lot about what makes a good novel. And I came to the conclusion that a good novel exposes the truth of the human condition through giving the reader a sense of the inner workings of the minds of the characters, and hence of other people. So a prime example of this is Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. I would now add that goodness can include giving the reader a vivid description of a particular place and time. As an example, I include the Aubrey Maturin series of sea novels by Patrick O'Brien. 
A further way to judge a novel, if it is old enough, is through its prescience. Orwell's 1984 comes to many people's minds today for its explanatory power of the current world situation. So Ira Katz says, That hideous strength is a good book on at least two of these levels. Even if the overall composition is lacking for me just because he says science science fiction and fantasy are not to my taste. But the first important lesson comes from understanding of the key character, an academic turned an academic social scientist who spirals into evil. He wants to be on the inside, so he is easily turned to do evil works. He was miseducated to believe in a pseudo-religious scientism. And Ira Katz says, see this recent discussion with Dr. Wolfgang Smith where he describes this ideological view of the world. He says explicitly that there exist bad spiritual forces that drive modern science. Now, Lewis's emphasis on organizations is brilliant. Any perceptive reader who's been in the military, worked for a corporation, or even has been a professor in a university will recognize the world of middle, middle managers. The counterexample of NICE is the bottom-up organization of Ransom's little band of apostles. The other important lesson comes from Lewis's prescience that's evident in the grand conspiracy, false flags, press manipulation, and the eugenics mindset that are so prevalent today and emanate from the same Scientology or the same ideology of scientism. Sorry, that was an interesting Freudian slip there. Please don't sue me. Anyway, in a recent post, the Bionic Mosquito quotes from the abolition of man pointing out the destruction of society follows the education like that of the social scientist character in, the, in that hideous strength. Quote, Albeit not overtly and not, maybe not even consciously, that words need not have meaning, that qualities are nothing more than personal feelings, and that there need not be anything objective in either. In fact, there can be nothing objective in either. End quote. Now, Ira Katz says in the preface to that hideous strength, Lewis explains explicitly that this is a tall story about devilry, though it has behind it a serious point, which I've tried to make in my abolition of man. In the story, of the, in the, story the outer rim of that devilry had to be shown touching the life of some ordinary and respectable profession. I selected my own profession, not of course because I think fellows of colleges more likely to be thus corrupted than anyone else, but because my own profession is naturally that which I know best. End quote. By the way, Ira Katz says the course that he was teaching did not go very well. In fact, he says, one woman said to me, one young woman, as they were walking out of class, she told him, I don't like your class. And he said that was surprising because students were normally less direct in those days. So when I asked her why, she responded, I have to think too much. I'm going to include a link to this in the show notes for today and encourage you to uh, to read the story, That Hideous Strength, as well as Ira Katz's review of it. And I, I can kind of identify with this. I'm, look, I'm no college professor. I'm, I'm not a smart person. I am a person who does love truth, and I love to inquire. I have an inquisitive mind. The National Enquirer would love somebody like me because I want to know. But I love people who can, can answer questions and, and make me think. And that's something I've tried to do over the years in uh, addressing my listeners. I, I like to make them think or to encourage them to think. And like the young woman walking out of Ira Katz's class, I hear from them on occasion. 
you know, you suck. That's one of the worst, you know, insults. But they, uh, they will, they will tell me it upsets them because it requires too much thinking, or I don't like to think too deeply about things. Now, the the flip side of that is there are also people who are very grateful, and who welcome the opportunity to think, and they quickly outpace me and they zoom along, leaving me in their dust, and that's totally okay. But if you really want to understand the world around you, and if you really want to to have a great, solid foundation of who you are and what you stand for, you have to be willing to think too much. You have to be willing to think at a level to which it's actually difficult. And I know we don't, we don't equate thinking with physical exercise. Well, you know, I worked up quite a sweat, you know, it's like an Iron Man for my mind. But sometimes it's like that. I think it was Mortimer Adler who was one of the great advocates of literacy uh, and one of the people who helped to compile the great books of Western civilization with the University of Chicago, talked about how real thinking is hard work. He, he likened it to climbing a rope by hand, hand over hand, working your way upward, you know, sweat pouring down your face. And I can tell you it is a lot like that. There is real effort involved and there is sacrifice involved. And The hardest part of all is when you bump into truths that fall outside of your mental universe. This is where some people puff up and become the gorilla version of themselves and want to just, you know, bang their chest and get all dominant and angry. It's hard to admit, ooh, I didn't know that, and then assimilate that new truth into your life. Why would someone do all this? Because it's absolutely worth it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.